everyone, and welcome back to Mesoamerican Studies On Air, the podcast that brings you real, recent research on ancient Mesoamerica. I'm your host, Catherine Knuckles Wild. Today's guest, Gerardo Aldana, is professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His research interests include Maya hieroglyphic history, Mesoamerican art, experimental archaeology, science studies, culture theory, and indigeneity. For today's episode, I invited Professor Aldana to share with us a little about his newest book called Calculating Brilliance, an intellectual history of Mayan astronomy at Chichen Itza. All right. Well, first of all, Gerardo, I can't thank you enough for taking the time um, out of your busy schedule to sit and talk with me about this new book that you've written, Calculating Brilliance. Um, I'm really excited to hear more about it, and I know that our listeners are as well. This is a really hot topic for all of us here in the community. Um, But I guess I wanted to just open the floor to you at the beginning and let you explain a little bit about what this book is about, what brought you to the topic, and yeah, just a general introduction for those of us who are hearing about this book for the first time. Uh, Thank you, Catherine. Uh, Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I was struck when I came across your um, bio or your website or something, and it said that there really are not any Mesoamerican podcasts. And how insane is that? So it's wonderful that you're filling the void. (laughs) It's wonderful that you're filling the void and doing it with very provocative content um, that I've seen so far. Hopefully folks will find this interesting as well. Um, but, but yeah, so I'm happy to talk about our book or, or kind of the themes there in general, um, because it is, it's, it's a number of different leads that brought me to this place. Um, what we're kind of talking about is a book that I just had um, published with the University of Arizona Press. It's called Calculating Brilliance. Um, and it's really supposed to be kind of a, a double entendre there, right? So on the one hand, it's calculating brilliance because they're looking at the stars. And so it's like the brilliance of the stars that they're trying to compute the patterns of. But on the other hand, it's a it's a question, it's a probing of what it means to understand intellectual activity in non quote unquote Western cultures, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very easy for us, in particular with astronomy, is we have these default ideas of what we're going to find interesting or what's important, right? So people talk about discovery, people talk about accuracy. You probably hear a million times in popular culture, people will say, "Oh, the Maya had the most accurate cult- uh, calendar ever." All these kinds of um, concepts that really aren't meaningful or they weren't meaningful in that way at the time. But for us, they become markers of kind of saying, oh, look, they're not what you think they are. Um, they're, they're ways of building forms of esotericism, but they don't really get at what's brilliant about the, the work that they did. So I'm kind of trying to work along those two lines in the book. On the one hand, to show what is uh, brilliant about the, the astronomical work that they did. But on the other hand, just to understand why they were interested in looking at the stars to begin with. I love that. And I love I love this idea of the of the double entendre and, and questioning in particular this Western way of, of approaching this. And it's it's something that is actually really interesting to me because as someone who also studies Maya glyphs, uh, it's very frequent for us to say. Um, as we're looking through an inscription, oh, you know, you can see the scribe made a mistake here. And sometimes we're, we're kind of embarrassed to admit it. Sometimes, you know, we're, it's, it's even um, uh, in the worst of cases, which don't always happen, but, you know, it's, it's almost a little scornful and, and we, we sort of tend to measure this, um, the, the worth of these things based off of their accuracy or lack thereof. Um, that's, yeah. That's, I love that insight too, because um, having been 
part of the field during the time span that I've been engaged with it, there's been so many different approaches to, to exactly what you're talking about. I mean, if you think going back to Linda Sheely, she would say, oh, some of these are, are mistakes because the, uh, the scribes were inebriated while they were doing the work because that was part of the ritual. And so there was this way of making it even more esoteric. And then there's this um, kind of some themes that are saying, you know what, people make mistakes. Maybe they just made mistakes. Maybe uh-huh. they're not meaning of themselves. Um, but but then kind of in between those two extremes, um, the, the, the first book that I wrote um, was actually finding patterns in mistakes, at least within calculations, and tying those to um, Floyd Lounsbury's old work on um, contrived numbers to show that there are times when mistakes are meaningful, like they're clues to um, deeper levels of knowledge. And, and that's not too hard to find within at least Mayan literature, right? Like we know that the whole language of Suyua from the books of Chilam Balam talk mm-hmm. about these riddles that you need to unpack in order to demonstrate um, what level of knowledge you have. So, so it's fun. I, I, I love that notion because it, it's really, it's fascinating to think about how we understand what we're calling errors and why we call them that. Right, absolutely. And I, I, I'm really interested in, in the beginning of the book. You know, I've, I've read through the preface and you, you recount this, this personal experience that you had while visiting um, a local indigenous community. And you started thinking about the ways that these dates, these astronomical events tie in nowadays with, with the Catholic calendar, right? The Gregorian calendar. Um, what was some of what were some of the early thoughts that brought you to this this project and that kind of moved you through what is undoubtedly a very thorough examination of Mayan astronomy? That's, that really does take me back, right? So yes, <laughs> at the very beginning, um, I start off with kind of my own personal experience. Um, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work in different communities, not just in terms of archaeology, not just in terms of epigraphy, but just because I, I see myself contributing to or hoping to contribute to the field of indigenous studies more broadly. Um, and so that's kind of a particular bent that I have. But, but, but there's kind of two things going on there. Uh, on the one hand, what I'm trying to do with the book is I'm trying to get away from the kind of archaeological stance of explaining cultures, right? Like this is what they were doing and this is why kind of sense. And 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 often when you look at an archaeological text or an anthropological text, um, it's almost as though we see European and American scholars kind of doing this discovery, doing this unpacking, and oftentimes they're even hidden. It's, it's not their individuality that brought them to a, a given argument. It's just that now the field argues this. And so we lose the individuals on the scholarly side, and then we esoterize um, the cultures that we study. And what I'm trying to do in this book is I'm trying to demonstrate that my my voice is just one amongst, amongst many. So you have scholars and you have their individual co- contributions. So I try to spend some time placing Ernst Furstmann in his context in Germany when he first comes across the Dresden Codex and makes the interventions that he makes. I try to go back and I unpack the history of this one guy who's fascinating, Sam Rubin, who was critical to the development of radiocarbon dating, right, in at a physics mm-hmm. level, um, and and show who he was and what happened to him, because it's all these people who really are in conversation with one another, and then we're saying, yes, there's a conversation on our side. There are also conversations going on on the indigenous side within the Mayan communities themselves. There isn't just one Maya astronomy. 
there's all kinds of competing astronomies because each community was doing it differently. So let's look at this overall text as a series of voices interacting with one another. And I'm implicated in that too, right? I can't say that now I'm standing outside of this and I'm describing this as an objective observer. No, I'm part of it. I am the author of this text, however it came out. And so I'm putting myself amongst those voices. So um, on the one hand, that's one of the reasons why I start off the book with that with that story uh, of traveling in Oaxaca. Yeah, and I and, and I love the way that that sort of sets the stage for what you what you describe as this multivocal experience um, through Maya astronomy. And you know, you you talk a lot. I'm you know, I know that throughout the book, you know, you talk about uh, Ernst Forsman and also uh, some ancient Maya rulers, right? That some of some of our listeners will know: Bachlach Chancawil, Chasau um, Chancawil. You also talk about um, the Chilambalam. So you're you're pulling from all these different contexts. Um, um, and these different uh, moments in time. Um, so what was the process like for you gathering and following all of these different threads to weave together a singular cohesive book? <laughs> well, I hope people find it cohesive. So, so I, I appreciate that. But um, yeah, I think it, it's really coming from, like, it is coming from a different place. Um, it's saying that in general, what we have, um, like in, in Mesoamerican studies overall, not just Maya studies, but um, we have a preponderance of archaeological scholars coming at the material. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with archaeology or archaeologists. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have, I have part of my training is in archaeology. But what I'm saying is that that comes from a perspective, right? Often, if we just think back, step back for a minute and talk about um, what motivates archaeological work? There's all kinds of interests that people have and they bring to the table when they first get here. But in order to do the work itself, it's really expensive, right? Excavation, everybody knows, is hugely resource intensive. Mm -hmm. It's it's just going to require a lot of funds. So what that requires is a different kind of buy-in, right? We need some other, some outside forces to believe in the research that we want to do. And then that's what allows us to eventually produce the scholarship that we want to produce. But that also means that we, at the same time, we have to, at some level, cater to the interests that are out there, right? And this is why I think you see so many, so much work that is driven by things like what happens when environments change? What happens when politics um, becomes really stratified and divisive? What happens when war takes over? The themes that we see people addressing are the themes that we're worried about in our own lives, modern times, and so that's how you can get people to support it, because you're looking at problems that, you know, are, quote unquote, universal or at least um, span across culture and times. And that's really important work. But at the same time, it gets away from the particularities of the people that you're studying. And that's what really worries me is that we often lose the humanity of the indigenous communities that produce the work that we're looking at. So, yes, Bakhlak Chang Kawil had a very specific political contest context that he was working within, but he also had, must have had motivations of his own, right? Like, was he, was he this really ambitious young upstart? Um, was he uh, a narcissist? Like, what was driving him personally? How often do we hear that kind of conversation or discussion or even speculation in an archaeological um, uh, argument? I think that it, it often falls away, and, and so we get away from the humanity of the people but I think that history and a historical approach allows for this, this alternate view. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get, on the one hand, 
the, the historical perspective of these of these folks and what they've done, but then nest it within what we know from the archaeological context about the lives that they were living. Yeah, and I, I love that because it, it reminds me of something that I personally found really attractive when I read Linda Shuley's Forest of Kings, which was that, you know, she did something along along these lines where, you know, she she wrote about, she and her co-authors obviously wrote about what we know about these these rulers um, and then sort of created a sort of um, quasi-narrative um, that kind of brings to life the people that we're talking about. And, you know, I, I know that, you know, I, I don't have to, to explain this to you because I know that you know it, but I, I think that it's important to recognize that there is sometimes a danger, right, in creating these narratives um, when we don't, you know, when we have to admit that there is, uh, there, there's a, a large percentage of the narrative that is us filling in the blanks. And so I'd love to learn more about and ask you about the process for, um, you know, someone, someone like, um, like you, like me, um, modern day people um, who are not classic Maya or post-classic Maya people. Um, how can we go about adding the humanity in to these, to these narratives and to these, uh, these ancient realities without superimposing our own modern and and western beliefs onto that narrative yeah that, that is a brilliant question and it was definitely something that that came up um, as a concern rightfully so um, when Sheely and Friedel came out with Forest of Kings um, even questions about uh, so a code of kings with um, Sheely and Matthews was very much less so relying on that uh, notion that you could Kind of invent scenarios. Um, I think there's a lot of things going on here, and I think we could spend all kinds of time just talking about <laughs> this. But um, but I, I do think we have to kind of temper this on two levels. Um, on the one hand, we're thinking about what was known in the 80s and early 90s when folks were writing those texts, right? Mm -hmm. So um, Sheely had Sheely's known. She called herself an edge walker, right? She was interested in pushing the field more than she was interested in making sure that she was accurate with representations. Um, and she's also known to have had kind of an interest in, in esoterizing. So, so I wouldn't say that we would go to read those texts as history, right? Mm -hmm. We would read those texts as an art historian engaged in archaeology, speculating about certain contexts. Um, and, and so I think that that's, we need to make that kind of disciplinary distinction that when you are looking at history, you are taking different approaches to it. You're looking at primary texts, you're looking at context, you're looking at trying to tie themes to what is materially there, not just what you're speculating on. So I mm -hmm. think that there's the disciplinary divide that we need to respect. And that often doesn't show up so much um, when it comes from our, um, archaeologists, at least in Mesoamerica and in the Western Hemisphere. Obviously, it's very different when you look at um, historical archaeology on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, but I think that, that so, so on the one hand, yes, there's a real concern with danger, with our just um, imposing whatever it is we want to Im impart on these ancient communities. Um, but I think there's another side to this too, right, which is that, yes, we do have texts that we can read now. We do have authorship. We do have motivation. We do have context. And we have to understand that it's coming from a place that is different, right? Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, is saying that um, 
one of the things that this brings me all all the way back to the very beginnings of of why I got interested in my archaeology to begin with, um, and and that is that what we have in Mesoamerica is incredibly uniquely provocative, right? What I was interested in back in the day was I was interested in what is science and what is math, right? Are these things that are existing outside of humanity and then we just discover them, or are they things that we invent? And one of the reasons I was interested in that was because it would tell us something about how we should be using math and science, right? If we invent it as humans, that means it's culturally laden. That means it's a project of specific humans in specific places. If it's something that's out there that just exists and we're discovering it, then it really does kind of mean, okay, whoever discovers it first gets to do what they want with it. And it's more of a competition between cultures or peoples. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so that gets us to this question of how do you understand what those things are to humanity and and if you go all the way back to um like okay what are the cases in which we could study this question we're kind of stuck because europe which, which is what we think of as like the the font of western and modern science was always in communication with folks in africa in the middle east even with asia right like there's cross fertilization of ideas and concepts and practices and methods through um, um, through scientific themes across the entire um, Eastern Hemisphere, right? So you can't say, oh, I'm going to look at Chinese math to find out how that's an independent um, development of a math or a science, because in some level, it was already in conversation with, um, you know, India, and India was in conversation with them. So you've got mm -hmm. all of this conversation. But Mesoamerica, there you go. There's something where whatever was developed was developed independently, right? right. Math astronomy and science, agriculture, these were developed, yes, in communication with North and South America, but independently of what was going on in Europe. So this is kind of a digression, but I'm getting to a point, please believe me. Um, <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that now when we look at the development of science and math in Mesoamerica, it would be natural for us to say, oh, that's just like, and then compare it to what we see coming out of, you know, Egypt or Meso, uh, Mesopotamia or what have you. Mm -hmm. It's harder to try to say, okay, well, what was this for the people who created it? And that's where you're getting into this combination of history and archaeology, where you're relying on these things as primary sources. Now, I do think that there's another step that we have to take. We can't just say, okay, well, let's just look at the inscriptions and, and see what they say. And because we're reading them, we're now fine. Um, because as you know, as an epigrapher, the interpretation of text is very different from the ability to read the text, right? Like you can say, I know what this word is, but it, the word itself changes in its meaning relative to the rest of the sentence and the rest of the sentence relative to the paragraph and the paragraph relative to the monument that it's on, right? All of these contexts are, are very important to take into account. And on top of that, there's the problem of language. Right? Mm -hmm. These languages do not necessarily construct meaning in the same way that Indo-European languages construct meaning. Um, I was recently uh, at a conference and I had an audience member refer to me as an anti-Shakespeare. <laughs> and, and, and the reason he said that was because what I was arguing is that if you look at Mayan languages, they do not use the copulative form of to be the way European languages do, right? So mm -hmm. on the one hand, you're like, okay, whatever. So to be, uh, you, can, you can find ways of getting around it. And you can still say similar things without using the verb to be. 
At the same time, the verb to be is so powerful in terms of Judeo-Christian philosophy, religion, and everything that comes after it, right? Mm -hmm. Like that notion of to be automatically creates binary oppositions, and binary oppositions become the basis of creating meaning. And there's indigenous scholars from North and South America who have argued that binary opposition is not an indigenous form of thought. There are oppositions, there are binaries, but they're not totalizing in the way that um, Judeo-Christian thought would have us, or even our own language, our English and Spanish or French, mm -hmm. even the way they construct meaning. So, so then what we end up with is we're looking at a language that constructs meaning differently, and they're writing about things in different ways than we would normally write them. Your own research on the concept of tzib tells us something about how representation of knowledge is different in indigenous um, communities than it was um, in, in Europe at the same time. So there's all of these layers that you have to address in order to get at meaning and get at intent. And I think that um, that's where things get really complicated, but also um, really intellectually stimulating. Yeah, and I think that it's it's in that complexity, right, that we're able to really bring the humanity of these moments to the forefront. Yes, because you're talking about choice, right? Mm -hmm. You have to you have to get to the point where you're asking about what choices people were making, and if you're looking at their choices, then you're looking at who they were and what moved them to make such choices. And really, that gets us all. Believe it or not, that gets us all the way back to one of the central themes in this book um what i've tried to what i've i mean accidentally fell upon was that there was a choice that really framed so much of the astronomy that we now understand to be in the venus table of the dresden codex mm. so tell me a little bit about that tell me about some some of these these conclusions that you've that you've come to in the book revolving around this idea of choice Okay, good. Um, so, so it, it really wasn't supposed to be that. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> Honestly, when I started this project, um, I had come off of some work on the calendar correlation, and that got me back thinking about the Venus table. Um, when I was in grad school, I was very, I mean, I, I could not be more convinced that if there was anything we knew about Mayan astronomy, it was how the Venus table works, right? That mm -hmm. seemed to me, this is ironclad. So, you, you, you understand, you, you study it to understand what's already been learned about it. And then lo and behold, um, 2009, 2010, I realized that there are a couple of assumptions that are built into the interpretation of the Dresden Codex Venus table that were questionable. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that what was happening was there had been a trajectory created by Eric Thompson that basically took the interpretation of the Venus table and made it subservient to the calendar correlation itself. So it was no longer that you were able to study the Venus table by itself as a thing. You had to understand it relative to this larger problem of correlating astronomies and calendars between um, European calendars and, my, and Mesoamerican calendars. And that seemed to me like, this is too cumbersome. Why would you do that, right? Mm -hmm. Let's try to keep things simple. Let's just look at what's written and see if we can understand it on that level. And so at first it was like, okay, all I'm going to do is I'm going to explain a different approach to looking at the Venus table. And that's what the book was supposed to be about. And then I realized, oh, when you actually look at the, at the words, you don't just think about it in terms of astronomy. When you look at the words, there's a text here that's very rich. 
that allows us to interpret what they're using this Venus table for. It's not just to see where Venus is. There's, there's an argument here for ritual activity in which you're taking these really beautiful and complex ceramic effigy incensarios that we see in the terminal classic and in the early post-classic. And you're taking these incensarios and you're rotating them for public view around the top of the caracol structure, mm -hmm. um, the tzikal at Chichen Itza. So what we're seeing here is not just an abstract scientific text. It's not a technical manual. It's actually an engagement with the public. And that got me really excited because then you're actually seeing people interacting around the Venus table, not just people counting um, days between different observable um, periods in, in this planet's motion. So it becomes, in, in a sense, to use the analogy, a sort of liturgy calendar. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, right? I think that's the other side of what's really exciting about um, taking a historical approach to Mayan astronomy as opposed to what we often refer to as an archaeoastronomy approach. Mm -hmm. um, if we take an historical approach, then we're learning from other histories and other contexts. And, and we often like to say, oh, you know, Copernicus, look at this is brilliant, abstract, geometrical thought. But he was working on Easter, right? Like he was trying to figure <laughs> out when, when, how do we predict when Easter will show? Like these are the kinds of questions that he had that drove him to get to the point where he creates this alternate representation of, of the solar system. And, and likewise, I think what was going on at Chichen Itza was a, a ritual motivation for understanding Venus observations. And then that's what led to this crazy anomaly when Venus shows up in the um, in the morning sky on the date one how when it's not supposed to. And so mm -hmm. this makes me realize, oh, somebody must have observed this. And when they observed this, what were they thinking? And that's the real that, that's the first real choice that you encounter in the book. What happens when you come across an anomaly and you're like, oh, is it just my mistake? Um, do I share this with somebody? Are they going to tell me that I'm wrong? Right. It's like it's kind of like the thing that happens in labs today, right? When you first come up with a result that you're not supposed to come up with, <laughs> what do you do, right? Do you, do you say, oh, it's my bad. I'm sure I messed up somewhere. Or do you say, well, you know what? Maybe this is revealing something wrong about the model that we started off with, right? The suspension right. of disbelief. Um, and so, so you have that. So that's one of the core elements here is what happens when you're, you're just doing your everyday Venus rituals and then all of a sudden you find this calendric anomaly. What do you do? Right. Yeah. And I think I think that's so interesting because, you know, and may, maybe this this isn't surprising to you, but it really it really does pull me back to this idea of the the common thread of humanity linking all these different stories. Right. And these these different uh, moments in time. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think we want to <laughs> I mean, I'm saying that you want to go for historical specificity, but that's not chucking all of, um, you know, the rest of humanity out. Um, out the window, right? Like mm -hmm. there's there's reason for comparison, but how we do comparisons and why we're doing comparisons, I think, um, are 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 important to yeah. take into consideration. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm basically arguing that what this person did at Chichen Itza is the same thing that astronomers do all around the world, right? It's like mm -hmm. how um, folks first figured out precession. It's how folks first said, "Oh, look, Mars is like Johannes Kepler and and Mars," right? Like. All of these examples come from doing observations and, and attempting to make sense of them. But why they do that and, and to what end, I think, is what, what make things different 
what makes things interesting and what, what makes them different in the end. Yeah. So as the, you know, I, I know that as, as the, the, the author and the, the gatherer of all of these stories um, and compiling them all into one, I know that you, you probably have your own unique view on the book, but for people who are, who are hearing, hearing us talk about the book and are curious about it, what would you say is the most exciting um, and, and new discovery that this book presents? That's a great question. Um, I, I kind of, I sh I've struggled with that, I think. But for me, I would suggest that it's the role of Quetzalcoatl and Kukulkan in the narrative. Um, when, when, like, when I was close to finishing the book, I thought I was close to finishing the book. I had all the chapters except for one half of one chapter, all at least thoroughly drafted. But I was waiting on this one half of one chapter because that was going to be the connection to Quetzalcoatl, right? That was going to be like, mm -hmm. oh, we all know from Central Mexican sources that Quetzalcoatl is connected to Venus. And we know that Kukulkan is connected to Quetzalcoatl. But why doesn't it show up in the Venus table? Why does why does why is there no reference to Kukulkan or Quetzalcoatl? And so I figured it's going to be very easy. I'll just kind of throw in a few paragraphs about um, how at some point after the Venus table is constructed, Quetzalcoatl becomes important. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how I, that's why I thought it was only going to be half of a chapter. But as I started to get into it, and in particular, as um, I was working on writing this last half chapter, in particular, um, I came across William Ringel's work and how he was thinking about the broader context of Mesoamerica during the Terminal Classic. And this pushed me to really think about these much broader themes, right? I mean, the Terminal Classic we know is fascinating because this is when we have all these arguments for a massive drought. Mm -hmm. um, and so the massive drought led to what folks used to call the collapse of Mayan civilization. Now we see it more as kind of a transition and a reorganization and a, a geographical um, movement of folks. Um, but, but it made me think about, okay, what are folks facing now in this time? And so I think that this is maybe what um, was most surprising and most interesting to me is that placing it in that context opened up a whole world. I was saying, okay, well, let's look at this one this one monument in particular. And for this, I have to mention the work of um, Peter Biro and Eduardo Perez de Heredia. They're, they came out with an article in 2016, 2015, um, that unpacked the Caracol disc. And I had not spent much time at all on this disc in the past. I think Linda Sheely had written something on it. I know Mark Van Stone was the, um, was the artist who, who did the, re, the, the drawing, the illustration of the monument. Um, but but when they when I came across that, it it blew me away because they're on the one hand describing the imagery and on the other reading the text. And when they're reading the text, they're saying, look, it's not just referring to um, this is where we get the name Tsiknal for the Caracol itself. It's not just naming Tsiknal. It's also referring to the folks who show up at the ceremony. And the folks are coming from far away. They're coming from Laguna de Terminos. They're coming from um, Campeche. They're coming from other parts out, like remote from Chichen Itza. Why are they coming here at this time? And why is this monument celebrating their arrival here? Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating to me is that the very beginning of that inscription starts with, and, and they argue that there's a couple of ways you could read it, but one of the readings of this text is um, it's U'ul Kukul Ek. The, and what they say is it's the arrival of the Quetzal star. And so for me, I'm like, okay, 
forget about it. I have to understand this mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. right? um, the arrival of the Quetzal star and then all of this um, feathered serpent imagery on the Caracol disc itself. How are these things telling us something about Venus and about Kukulkan slash Quetzalcoatl? And it, it turns out that there's um, arguments that then unfold around why folks at Chichen Itza and, and what we call old Chichen would have been interested in looking at alternative alliances at the time. And so what I end up doing is I end up taking that one, remember I talked about that first choice, that first anomaly that an astronomer came up against. And then I place that into the context of the terminal classic and like this new, um, this new connection to central Mexico and Oaxaca that, that develops in terms of um, trade relationships. The movement of trade itself away from the Osuma Santa River and around um, the peninsula itself to go seafaring instead of river faring. Mm -hmm. All of these themes start to come together to present another choice. And to me, it says, are the folks at Chichen at the time, are they saying, well, we can either maintain our relationships with the folks in the south and the Peten who are going to go back to their old ways once the rain comes again, um, or are we going to go north, go the seafaring route, and potentially ally with the, ally with the folks who are in central Mexico, who are in Oaxaca, and go that route with it? Um, and so it becomes an economic decision that's also driving the context for what happens when this person um, confronts an anomaly in the astronomical record. And I think that all these things together end up with um, why we see that text and what the relationship of Kukulkan is to Venus and to Quetzalcoatl at Chichen Itza and thereafter. Right. So it's sort of a, a moment of um, conscientious community building, would you say? Conscient I mean, I think it's, I think it's <laughs> um, political economy. <laughs> I think it's, mm -hmm. it's strategy, right? Like they're saying, yeah. where do we fit into this broader um, changing world, right? Like, if you don't, if you're if you're thinking about the terminal classic, and you're saying, we don't know when this drought is going to end. We don't know if this drought will end, right? We don't. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not trying to say drought in the sense of like like in California, drought means something very different, right? It means like no water. Right. Um, in in Mesoamerica, in the tropics, it means less water. Um, so I don't think it means that folks are like starving. What I think it means is that in particular, river levels are going to go down, and if river levels go down then you can't trade the way you used to trade, right? Mm -hmm. I was talking to some folks in, in Belize not too long ago, and they were mentioning even in their lifetime, they've seen river levels dry up to the level, to the point at which they couldn't even get logs downstream, right? So so there's a, there's a fundamental economic impact to drought beyond the notion of just agriculture. And I think that's kind of the context that they were facing. Who are we, what, what network are we going to be a part of because we know that, especially the classic period, was all about networks, right? It was right. all about, who, right? Yep. I mean, that goes without saying, right? Pick up um, Simon Martin and Nikolai Gruba's Chronicle of Kings and Queens, and all you can do is look at these networks evolving and changing over time. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to be thinking about what your network will be going forward. Right, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that's such an interesting idea, and it, it, it is such a, such a, mm, sharp contrast right that we see from this classic period to the post-classic um 
Another uh, question that, that I wanted to ask you about is in relation to this conical disc, um, is the dignitary that you uh, refer to in the book as Kukulek Tuilach. Um, I, I would love to, to hear you talk a little bit about more uh, more about her and what you what you talk about regarding her in the book. Yes, great. Um, so at, at the very beginning, when I was trying to put this thing together, I was thinking about um, what I mentioned before, right? Like how how do we make sure that there are voices of indigenous people, not just us explaining indigenous people? So the first thing I said was, okay, let's look at the Dresden Codexes. Dresden Codex itself. And we know that there are multiple copyists who had a hand in producing that manuscript, but there are arguments for multiple parts of the manuscript being written by the same scribe. And so you can say, okay, the, the guy who was working on, or the person who was working on the Venus table was probably also working on um, the New Year's table and other parts of it, right? Mm -hmm. So we can get some level of authorship there. But then it was it's very clear to, to most folks working on this that um, the Dresden Codex that we have is a copy of a much earlier manuscript, right? So mm -hmm. the question is, how do you go back and look at those earlier times and when it was written? And so these are the things in the back of my mind when I'm saying, okay, I, I'm also working with individual with individual indigenous authors. How do I give them voice? And so at first I was thinking, well, easiest thing, right? Default, just call these men, right? Just these are these are men, scribes, and, and nobody's going to question that. Mm -hmm. And so um, I kind of had stand-in um, characters who were the authors behind one, the person who was um, writing the first version of the Venus table that eventually gets copied into the Dresden Codex, and then the copyist himself um, who, who writes later. But then I'm doing the work and I'm, you know, looking at these texts and I'm looking at these monuments, and, it, and, and this thing strikes me that um, I just found to be really provocative. On the Karakol disc itself, you have these two scenes, right? Um, there's a lower scene and an upper scene. And, and there's a really fun argument here that um, Biro and um, Perez make, where they say it's two moments in time of the same ritual, right? So mm -hmm. in the lower image, there's folks who are carrying a torch. Um, and in the upper image, that's where you see like this incense being burnt and you see um, this huge feathered serpent arising and, and the Mishkoat figure emerging from the, the jaws of the feathered serpent. And so very Quetzalcoatl-like um, imagery. But in the lower figure, it's a, um, they argue that this is the event that occurs at night, which is why they have the torch. And the upper figure um, is, is happening during the day. And that's when the rest of the ceremony occurs. So it's really something that starts like maybe in the wee hours of the morning and lasts into daytime. And so in that bottom image, there's this one figure on the far left. And this figure, who seems almost marginal to what's going on in the central event, this figure is wearing a feathered serpent headdress, the mm. kind that you see showing up in all of the murals, you know, the, the, the paintings of, um, of the, um, the, the large, the great plaza at Chichen Itza, right? So when you mm -hmm. see the warriors and they're attacking and then behind them, there's this huge um, feathered serpent who kind of encircles their body. You see one of those on this marginal figure. And I'm like, well, why, why does that make sense? Why would this marginal figure be wearing the feathered serpent headdress when this is all about the arrival of the Quetzal Sar and it's about you know um, the emergence of Mishkoat in this event? And then the, the person who's wearing this feathered serpent headdress is also wearing a long skirt 
which looks very much like if if you probably know this because you know Koban, looks mm-hmm. a lot like um, the skirt that um, Washak Washak Lahun Ubah Kawil wears on Stila H, mm-hmm. which is what people confused at the very beginning. People said, "Oh, this is a woman because it's wearing a skirt," and they're like, "No, it's 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 a man, but he's wearing the maize god skirt." And so, um, anyways, there's this skirt, this long skirt that this figure is wearing. And I'm like, okay, well, I know I've seen that at other places at Chichen. This is what got me interested in this notion that maybe these aren't abstracted representations that we might take um, an anthropological view of. Maybe these are records of history, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe these are people who are actually at this event. And that means that we can compare it to other records of the same event, right? There's another event in the lower temple of the Jaguar um, in the ball court that represents almost the same central theme, but it's much huger, right? Like there's mm. stacks upon stacks of um, images in this procession that all occurred at the same time. It's like they were saying, yeah, we, we carved that scene a long time ago. And now we're really going to show you what happened because now we went full on in this direction. We bought into this whole um, approach to Quetzalcoatl and Kukulkan. And now we're going to represent the grandeur of the whole thing. And you find somebody wearing a similar dress in that also in a marginal position. But in that position, it's clearly a woman because you can see they've taken the time to carve her um, nude chest. You can see her breasts Mm -hmm. on that. I'm like, wait a second. Is it possible that this person here in this image is historically the same person as this image? And then you look around you, and you find, oh, there are a number of other representations of women wearing similar dresses. And they're all shown as depicted as women around the columns at Chichen Itza. And so at that point, I'm like, I'm making an, I'm forcing myself to not argue that this is a woman. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it, and then, and that hit me with like, well, hold on a second. Why am I doing that? Like, what are the biases in my head saying that I should default towards a man? Right. We know that there were female um artists and even, you know, like rulers in Kukula Haula at, um, in, during the classic period. Mm-hmm. We, yes, there were fewer of them, but they did show up there. So why am I going out of my way to represent this as a man astronomer, as opposed to a woman astronomer? And that's when I decided, you know, let's just go with it um, and, and see what happens. And, 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 that's, and that's where I left it. Yeah. And I, I, I love it because it, it does bring us back into this um, this context where, you know, we're starting to, I say starting, but we're at a point now where we know so much more about the political and social life of individuals. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I know that recently we've had books uh, published about the classic Maya, right, where uh, Stephen Houston wrote about a Maya universe carved in stone, and it was all focused on the work of one specific scribe that we've been able to identify by name. And, you know, the, it, it's, it's, I feel like this is part of a large movement where we are starting to see the individual among the larger cultural context. See, I love see, I love that you bring that up because um, it, the way I see it, it's it's not necessarily new. It's a theme that's been there, but it's been underutilized, right? Mm-hmm. If you go back and you look at you look at Linda Sheely's students, right? Not necessarily Linda Sheely's work herself, but um, if you look at Matthew Looper, right, and right. what he did at Kibwa, right, he basically went and he said, "Let's look at these individuals and let's look at these um, Kuhula House and what they did as individuals." 
Um, Elizabeth Newsom did the same thing when she was looking at Copan. Mm -hmm. I actually tried to do the same thing with my first book, and I was talking about um, Khan Balam and his approach to patronizing astronomy um, at the end of the um, 13th, what we call Katun, or Winikab, right? So, so there has been a theme of work that has started with the individual and then explored um, the, the context around them, but it's really come more from an art historical uh, trajectory than it has from the archaeological trajectory. So, right. yeah. Yeah, no, and I, yeah, I, I, I love that this, this book continues that theme and um, brings in, you know, more, more possibilities. Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate you, you know, leaning into that and, and sort of, you know, stepping into the the questioning and and wondering about these biases that we generally have, right? And I think that you know, it could, again, as an educator, it can only be useful, right? Because yes. we want to think about these things, we want to problematize these things. Maybe folks aren't going to buy my argument, but that's totally fine, right? At least they're trying to consider what it might mean, what it would take to make this kind of argument, what I've left out of the argument what um, they, why they protest in the first place. I mean, all of those are productive questions. What, what really kind of changed my approach to a lot of my work over the years has been, I mean, kind of, it's fundamental to epigraphy, right? It's, it's coming out of linguistics. It's mm -hmm. saying you don't have to be, there, there is no right that you get to, right? The history is this way, right? It's, it's not that you're ever gonna get the right answer. Um, it's, it's not like math in that way. Um, what you're looking for are those mechanisms that are productive, right? So mm -hmm. when you come to an interpretation of a verb and it answers your question and you're like, okay, great, now I've solved this problem. But, the, but you shouldn't stop there. You should say, well, what does this say about other places in which this verb is used? Is it productive in understanding those or have I reached a dead end? And I think that that approach, right, saying, is it productive? Is this intervention a productive one? Is it generative of other possibilities or is it a dead end? To me, that's been more the driving force. And I think that that is the role that Kukulektu Yelach is playing in this text, right? I, I, I'm convinced, you know, I'm like, yes, this is a woman and she did this and this is cool. This is really cool. But I think that it's also productive for the field for us to be thinking about what happens when we look at women's agency in ancient Mesoamerica. Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, well, I, you know, I, this has been such a productive conversation and I, I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of the book to read through more of it. Um, but as we're, as we're wrapping up here, I want to make sure that I give you the opportunity to share anything else that you wanted to share about this book. Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to discuss? <laughs> I, I, I love that question. Thank you very much. Um, as you can tell, I get excited about it. So uh, to be honest, I'm not sure what we covered. <laughs> we, could have covered we could have covered it all already. I, I don't know. But um, I, I did, honestly, I did attempt in this book to write something that is more accessible than stuff I've written in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I am finding now that, you know, it's, it's really easy in academia to, to write to your colleagues and to focus on your colleagues. But there is such a broader audience out there that's interested in the work that we do and, and, and reaching out now and again, not always, not exclusively, but reaching out to, um, to make something accessible, um, I think is something that's, that's taking more um, of my interest and my time now. Um, and so I think, you know, if, if folks were even to take a look at 
the progression of my scholarship about over time, you'll probably see that. Like there's there's earlier times when I was really just writing for five other people on the planet. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, you kind of have to do that at some point. But uh, I think if nothing else, society has been screaming at academics that we need to demonstrate that we are relevant beyond um, our ivory towers uh, these days more than ever. Absolutely. Yeah. And I and I think that the, um, you know, the, the amount that I've been able to read so far of, of your book, the preface, the introduction, um, it really speaks to that. As I was reading through it, I really did get the, get the feeling that this is something that is accessible to uh, people like our listeners, right, who might not come from the academic community, uh, but who are very passionate about this topic. And um, so I, I, I definitely do congratulate you on, you know, the, the parts that I've read so far being very accessible. Thank you so much. I, and I really appreciate your taking the time um, to, to look through it at all. <laughs> so thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much uh, for taking the time to sit and chat with me. It's been such a pleasure. I've learned so much. And like I said before, I can't wait to get my hands on your book and read a lot more about it. Thank you. And I really look forward to your work too. It sounds like fascinating stuff. And, and yeah, um, full figure glyphs could not be more fun to try and unpack and and understand the contortions and the expressions and all that's going on in those. So, so good luck to you. Thank you so much. Another huge thank you to Professor Aldana for joining us on today's episode. And as always, if you want to learn more about Professor Aldana's work, you can check out the webpage for today's episode by going to MesoamericanStudiesOnline.com. Thank you, and I'll see you next episode. Thank you.